Well, good morning again. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here in this Advent season. Thank you for bringing the church into this YMCA gymnasium. Excited to uh, be into week two of Advent with you all. If I've not had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Jamie, and it's my absolute privilege just to serve here as one of the pastors at Crosspoint. Uh, I get to open up God's word with you all this morning. And so as we made mention, if you were here last week, uh, we began our Advent series in this particular season. We're gonna continue to unpack and explore like what Advent means like right here and right now that it is more than simply this countdown to Christmas. And we'll talk more about those things here in a moment. But we shared with you last week as we began this series that we're looking at the conclusion of the Bible. We're looking literally at the last four chapters of the book of Revelation, all right? And so that's where we're gonna be this morning, all right? Now, if you're thinking, you know, charts and prophecy conferences and graphs and all this sort of end time prediction, that's not, I'm gonna disappoint you just to let you know right now that's not necessarily what we're getting into, though we are going to be in a text this morning that is going to raise lots and lots and lots of questions, more questions than I can possibly answer, um, simply because of time and also, I don't know the answers to all these things, all right? Just to let you in on that in case you were wondering, all right? Uh, but we are gonna be in Revelation chapter 20 this morning, so I want you to have this in front of you. We're going to read it all together here in a moment. I'm going to read it out loud, and you are going to see immediately why this, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll be like, oh, I know what this text is. And some of you are like, I have no idea what this is, but I'm kind of curious now. You're going to see, like, there's a lot of, we'll just say very interesting things in here. And like, okay, how do we make sense of this? And what in the world does this have to do with Advent, right? Like, I thought we were just in this kind of Christmas spirit, and now we've got stuff about, like, dragons and the beast and, and fiery pits of hell, and like, welcome to Christmas, right? Like, what in the world is happening. So we're going to try and untie all that, make sense of that. And I hope you will see by the end of this that this, in fact, is a beautiful Advent passage. may not be what we would typically think of. might not be the go-to. might not be in your Advent calendar or you're gathering the kids around and you're, you're opening up the doors and counting down the, you know, the days of Christ, till Christmas and be like, let's read this text. But I promise you, we should be reading it, all right? So Revelation chapter 20, it's 15 verses. All right, I'm gonna read these here in a moment. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's some paperback ones on the tables back there. I'd encourage you to get up, grab one of those, go almost to the very, very end, page 1142. All right, you'll find this text. Take that Bible home with you if you don't have one. We want you to be able to follow along. Or as always, get your phone out. Go to cpwp.life. Click the second card as you swipe over. It says message notes, and you'll find the text there as well as other things that we'll talk through this morning, things that will be up on the screen will be listed there. So I'm going to ha- go ahead and read this. If you're able, would you go ahead and stand as I read God's word this morning? We'll be reading Revelation chapter 20. Here's what these words say. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Verse four, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Verse seven. 
And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. So you read that perfectly clear right now. I can just close in prayer. We'll sing a couple more songs. We'll be on our way. Merry Christmas. Everybody's probably feeling very festive at this point, right? Like, what are we to do with this particular text? Now, here's what I told you. Like, we're journeying through the last chapters of the Bible, all right? So as you can figure out, as you've, you know, whether you're familiar with the Bible or not, you know, hey, this is the end. And if you're picking up the story kind of at the end of the story, it would be helpful to kind of know, okay, where are we? What's preceded it? All of that in order for us to make sense of this very, very complex chapter, all right? It's one that certainly has generated more controversy, more opinions, more thoughts, more articles, more commentaries, blogs, you know, it's divided denominations, all right? It's just, there's a lot that's in here. But my hope and prayer for you is this, and for myself as well, not only in this chapter, but in, the, in this whole series, is that we would make much of Jesus. That's what I need you to hear first and foremost is this, right? This glorify, it, it, it brings glory to God. It showcases who Jesus is, his power, his might, his sovereignty, his kindness, his grace, his goodness. There's complexity in this. There's gonna be people in this room, all right, that you're gonna have a different take on this than they will, all right? But if Jesus is ultimate, that is in the closed hand. That is something we celebrate. There's some open-handed things about this, that there's gonna be different takes on this. Some people are gonna be like, well, here's what I think the thousand years means, and here's what I think it means, and, and you can have those conversations, all right? I'm gonna tell you what I think it actually means, but at the end of the day, it's not enough to separate us, all right? The big thing, and what we need to see in Advent as we talk about this, is we're here to make much of Jesus, and this text makes much of Jesus, and so our prayer is that the Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts and our thinking so that Jesus would be more and more worshiped in this place. And so as we get into this, it's helpful to just go back and ask, and as we've been doing in this, this service already, what actually is Advent? It simply means like a coming or an arrival, all right, that is just bursting forth onto the scene. And so there's the first Advent, which is the story of Jesus, what we will celebrate at Christmas. So Christmas Eve, all right, you're going to hear about Jesus coming into this world, born in the most humble of circumstances, all of that, all right? But it is more than simply the countdown to Christmas Day. It's this time in which we live where we anticipate, we long for the second advent. We long for Jesus to split the sky and to come back and to dwell with us and to make everything right and to wipe away every tear. And I want to encourage you to be back next week as we get into Revelation 21 and 22. And not that there's not complexity in those chapters, but there is a beauty in those chapters about what is ahead for the follower of Christ that is so, so encouraging. 
But before we would get to that, we have to understand chapter 20. And so this chapter, though, just know it shows up here and it's helping to explain, all right, how do we live in this time between the first advent and the second advent? And ultimately in this Advent series, here's what I want you to be thinking through. If you can read the tagline there, this idea of Advent is that we've been promoting is this, this longing for God with us. Maybe a way to think about it is this. It's this longing to be home. That deep within every single one of us, there is this longing to belong, to be in the presence, to be welcomed home, all right? And I know in the holiday season, the idea, maybe you're gonna travel and you're gonna go home wherever that is, or people are coming to your home. That can be a beautiful thing. It can be a stressful thing as well. But in its best moments, right, there's something glorious. There's something like enchanted about it where it's just like, oh, this all is right in the world. Like we long for that. There's something deep within the human condition that wants this sense of peace and of belonging and of being home. And if we're gonna understand chapter 20, all right, and understand what we're called to as Christians, we have to understand God's design and God's desire to get us home. Chapter 20 is about what the Lord is doing on your behalf and on my behalf to get us home. Yeah, there's complexity, yeah, there's questions, but big picture, know this, it's about Jesus, about what he's done in his first advent, what he's gonna do in his second advent, and what he has accomplished for us, not someday off in the future though, like right here, right now, and the home that you can experience. So I want us to be thinking about this, like how does this fit within Advent? And I also want to talk to you as we get into this, we're going to get into the actual text in a moment, but I want to talk to you about Ben Schlappig and the hobby. Now, I was introduced to this particular story of this particular person. Uh, maybe you're familiar with him. I was reading a book uh, recently, and the author began talking about this young man who I believe is in his late 20s now. At the time of this picture, uh, he was 25 years old. Uh, he... Uh, had been living in Seattle, all right? This was a, a piece that the Rolling Stone magazine did on him. And he has become famous in certain circles uh, for something that the insiders refer to as the hobby. It is a way to sort of travel hack, meaning you take advantage of credit card miles and points and travel points and travel miles through the airlines in such a way that you fly as often and as much in first class, getting access to the first class, like the lounges all over these airports all over the world. You do that as inexpensively as possible, if not for free. And so this young man, Ben, all right, had had this fascination with airplanes since he was a little kid. In fact, it's a very sad story about it. his older brother died. He was... Uh, I believe his older brother was 14, maybe he was three or four at the time, and he was inconsolable. And his mother would often take him just to go watch the airplanes take off and, and land near the airport near their house. And what it, maybe that's part of it, but from a very early age had this just fixation on airplanes. So much so that even when he was in high school, he began, he's like logging on in these chat rooms and he's figuring out all these ways. His parents literally would let him just get on, get on flights and just go all over the country and he'd leave like on a Friday night and be back Sunday night. So he'd go to school on Monday, right? Now I'm not advocating for that. I'm not recommending you do that with your teenager, but this is just what he did. And eventually, here's where the story goes. It was in 2014, I believe. This article was written in 2015. It tells us that one day his apartment lease was up and he's just like, he kind of had enough and he's like, I think I'm just gonna travel. I'm literally not going to have a quote home anywhere. I'm going to fly as often as frequently and for free. And he became a celebrity. He, was, he blogs about it. He's made over a million dollars by not having a home and traveling. 
okay? And so it tells us this, at the age of 25, all right, he's a star among what is called an elite group of obsessive flyers whose mission, it says in the article, is to outwit the airlines. They're self-styled competitors with a singular objective, fly for free as much as they can without getting caught. So in April 2014, at the end of a lease on a Seattle apartment, he walked into SeaTac Airport, and as the writer of the Rolling Stone article says, he hasn't come down since. In the past year, he's flown more than 400,000 miles, enough to circumnavigate the globe 16 times. Some of you have flown like a long distance. You're like, dude, that's a a long ways to go, okay? It's been 43 exhausting weeks since he slept in a bed that wasn't in a hotel, and he spends an average of six hours daily in the sky. But he doesn't consider himself a nomad. Quote, the moment he whiffs the airless ambiance of a pressurized cabin, he's home. Tells us that as the, our author traveled with him a bit of this Rolling Stone article, began to know, you know, get to know him and unpack his story a bit, he noticed one thing, though, and he comments, and he says, his trip reports, though, as he blogs about it, betray a theme. In photo after photo, entirely devoid of human companionship, empty lounges, first-class menus, embroidered satin pillows, inanimate to- totems of a five-star existence. Schlappig then repeatedly insists that his life can go on forever this way, but he does announce genuinely that he wants to settle down one day. And then near the end of the article, he comments and he says this as he's reflecting on his life. He says, the world is so big, I can keep running, he says. And at the same time, it makes you realize the world is so small. And after a long pause, he continues, I want what I can't have. There's nothing gratifying about that. I'd still like to think I'm a reasonably happy person, he grins despite all that. What is happening in his heart is the same thing that happens in your heart and in my heart, and it may manifest itself differently, but there's this desire. It's in the American spirit, it's the Jack Kerouac, it's the the beat generation, it's on the road, but in this case, it's not on the road so much as up in the air, but it is this desire, like just around the corner. Can I keep traveling? Can I keep pressing on? Can I keep moving? Will my ambition take me to a place where there's this ultimate sense of self and of home and of a rest for my soul? And what he comments on, though he's living this life of absolute luxury, has now made over a million dollars in doing this and is welcomed into the most exclusive, of environments, there's still this aching in his soul. And it's no different for you and for me. It just may look a little bit different in our pursuits. And so what we need to see here is what the Lord invites us into. He has been making a way to get us home, where we stop being just the travelers, always wanting and searching, thinking something will satisfy when the Lord has showcasing for us. And we're praying that we see this afresh and anew in this Advent season that you can find rest for your soul, that Jesus has invited us to come and to rest. And so as we look at this this morning, I wanna explore our past, our present, and our future, okay? We'll look specifically about our present and our future as we get into uh, Revelation chapter 20. But deep within all of us, just can we just reflect for a moment? This man who's featured in this Rolling Stone article, again, there's a longing for home. And you have that longing, and this longing has existed all the way back since Genesis chapter three. Because in Genesis one and two, we were in perfect harmony, communion with our maker in this vertical relationship and then outward horizontally to in relationships, marriage, friendships with creation, but everything gets fractured, everything gets torn apart. 
and God removes his people from their presence. And the story of the Bible can be understood as one telling us how God is going to get us home. Because Genesis 3, 23 to 24 says this, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so we've been pushed out east of Eden. We've been driven out. And it's not just Adam's story and Eve's story, but it's your story and my story. All right. And ever since that time, there's been this longing. Can we just go back? Can we get back to what we were created for? Lord, how are we going to get there? And we try and we try and we keep trying what we would say are new and innovative things, but are nothing but tired old strategies, thinking it will satisfy. And the question plagues us. How will we actually get home? And the first advent is about God's answer to that question. I love the way the Apostle Paul says this in Galatians chapter four. He says this, but when the fullness of time had come, meaning like God's been preparing and planning, like you think you got Christmas plans and maybe you've got it locked down and you're one of those people, I've been waiting for this day and I've got this, I've got the decorations, I've got the surprise for this, these people that I love and I care about. From God's perspective, it, what you've got pales in comparison. He's been planning the ultimate epic celebration and party. Now, it looked different than people expected, but when the fullness of time had come, just at the right moment, God's like, well, the day is finally here. Like, I can't wait, all right? God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might be received. What? Adoption as sons. And that's not just for the men that get in on this. The language here is the son is the one who got all that the family had, the, the sense of belonging, the inheritance, a place at the table. Jesus has come to bring you home. The first advent is an answer to the question, how is God gonna get us home? And yet we live in this time, don't we, where we long for that ultimate sense. Like we might know it, we might experience it, we know it probably intellectually at times. We're like, okay, I've got this rest in Jesus, but we don't always feel it because we live in this time between the first advent and the second advent. We long for Jesus to come back. That same longing is that God, we want you to come dwell with us. We wanna be in your presence. This is what we've been created for. And every pursuit that you and I have that we make ultimate is a way for, really we gotta pay attention to that. Our heart is saying, I hope this thing brings me home. I think, I hope this thing satisfies. I hope this relationship is enough. I hope this vacation is enough. I hope this amount of money, I hope this project, I hope this travel that I get to do, whatever it happens to be. We gotta pay attention. There's a redemptive longing that's happening in your heart and in my heart with the people you work with, your neighbors, your family members, your friends. And our calling as a Christian then is to say, I found a way home that the God of the universe has come for us. So now let's look at Revelation 20, because I wanna talk about if that's our past, and that's what drives all of us. I believe Revelation chapter 20, though it has things about the future we'll look at in these first six verses, here's what I want you to see and to hear. Now, I say this as humbly as I can to say, hey, I realize there are different takes on this. When you talk about the thousand years, there's gonna be some people that, hey, that's a time off in the future. What I believe this is communicating is verses one to six specifically are telling us about the right here and the right now. That you and I, in this sort of symbolic way, meaning this thousand years is this general representation of the time that we live in right now. That the first advent has happened, we're waiting for the second advent, and right here, right now, the things that are spoken of in one to, verses one to six, I believe are true. 
And we need to stop and recognize this big picture so that we will be encouraged to know about what our God has done, what he is doing, what he promises he will do. Why? Not for us to just have random interesting things to debate about, about like the lake of fire and beasts and dragons and all this stuff, but rather that we would see God is sovereign, that God is good, that God is on the move, that God cares about you and he's going to get you home. And so look with me again at how chapter 20 begins. It's this vision. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. So you picture this angel. So John is the one writing this. He gets this vision. It's like you got this chain. Maybe it's like wrapped around him, right? The, the ends of it are hanging there. He's like, I've got this chain, all right? And I'm looking for the enemy to bind him. So this is the vision that he gets, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. So he's got the key and he's got a great chain. And notice this. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, the one that showed up in Genesis 3 that said, God's holding out on you. God doesn't have what's best. He's always been a deceiver. He's been a liar. He's a murderer from the very beginning. And so God says, hey, I've got plans for him. He might be powerful. He might be scary, all right? Um, This imagery that's being used of a dragon that's rather intense, but it doesn't phase God. And so God sends his angel It says, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And it says, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so they might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. So first thing I want you to see is this. In this time, we can rest well knowing Satan actually is bound. Not just that he will be bound someday in the future, that what Jesus accomplished in his first advent, this is why this is an advent text, is because it's looking back on what Jesus accomplished. Something significant happened in the incarnation when Jesus showed up in his life, his death, and his resurrection. I actually believe in this. If we don't see it, that Satan is bound, it minimizes what Jesus actually did in his life, death, and resurrection. God is communicating to us, like we're living in this time right now between the Adams. I need you to know Satan actually is bound. There's one other place in scriptures where Jesus is actually talking about the binding of Satan. It's the exact same language that's used. Let me put it up on the screen for you this morning. Jesus is talking about He's interacting with a group of people that are like, he cast demons out by the power of Satan. And Jesus is like, okay, listen, can we, just, can we just put our logic thinking caps on for a moment? And he's like, why in the world would Satan be like, you know, casting out demons? Like, you're, that's kind of his team, right? Like, it doesn't make any sense at all. Jesus is dealing with a group of people that are trying to figure out, what is he doing? How does he have this power? And so Jesus in Matthew 12 says this in 28 to 29, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons which is what was happening, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so he's telling this group of people, listen, you've been waiting for the kingdom, you've been waiting for that advent, for God to show up, and it is here, the kingdom is advancing. And then he uses this imagery, and here's this language of binding. He says, or how can somebody, he's like, just think about it, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he what? Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is saying, in my first advent, I showed up and I am plundering the gates of hell. Like, I am plundering Satan. I am binding him. So we can rest well at night knowing that the God that we serve and we worship 
has conquered Satan, sin and death, that Satan actually is bound. Now, there's stuff in the future that he speaks of, and we'll get to that in a moment, but just know this, like he is defeated. This is why Paul, with great confidence, can write in Colossians chapter 2, 13 to 14, he says, you, he's talking about all of us, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, what? God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Like, this should be, commit this to memory. Like, go back to this. Remember when, those, when the enemy still has this limited power, when he speaks lies to you and says, you, how dare you? Like, you've got shame, you've got this brokenness. He whispers in your ear, you're never gonna get better. You're always gonna be the, this way. You're like, oh, oh, wait a minute. That was nailed to the cross. So shut up, Satan, literally. Like, that's, that's how powerful this is. He doesn't have the final say. And because that's true, like, this is the reality of what took place in the first advent. It says Jesus, through his, the cross, this upside down thing where people were like, oh, he's lost. He's like, uh-oh, uh-oh, three days later, resurrection. Uh-oh, look what actually happens. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, which is speaking at the spiritual realm of Satan and his demons, the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Vanquished foe, defeated, he is bound. He's being dragged through the city, and Jesus is leading the parade and is like, look who I conquered, and I did that. Why? To get you home to get you home. And so John is writing this to a group of people that are being persecuted intensely, living under the Caesars, living under people like Nero who literally were taking Christians and they would, he would put them, he would impale them on sticks and then put them, light them on fire and watch them burn to light his like garden parties that he was having. That's how he did Christmas lights. Like so incredibly sick and twisted. And so you got this group of people that are like, we're this tiny little church. We're like this misfit ragtag group. And John is like, hey, I got a vision. Satan is bound. He doesn't have the final say. That God is victorious. Now, I think it does raise the question, and I love this quote I'm about to read to you from William Hendrickson, his commentary on Revelation. It's like, we do live in this time, though, where we feel the effects of sin and Satan and brokenness. And that's true. It's not to downplay that. It's not this, we're victorious in all areas. You're like, bro, did you, like... Just pay attention to your past week, right? We know that's not true. So he said it this way. A dog securely bound with a long and heavy chain can do great damage within the circle of his imprisonment. Outside that circle, however, the animal can do no damage that can hurt no one and can hurt no one. So that's the imagery here. Yes, the enemy, the beast, Satan, the dragon. He's vicious. There's a real sense in which He's after us in that sort of sense, right? Doesn't love Jesus or his church, wants to see it destroyed, but he's bound. And in this time, there's this limited impact that he can have. I also believe that this is speaking of not only the reality now about Satan, but I think this text also showcases for us because it talks about him deceiving the nations. But guess what? The truth is advancing. The gospel is advancing. The gates of hell are not withstanding the movement of the church that in places that never would have before ever been thought like, well, that God could do something there are exploding. Like Christianity is on the move. Now, we sometimes in the West right now feel like, well, it's kind of on the, in the down. Yeah, but worldwide it is growing. It is advancing. God is doing new things. The truth is advancing. Now, this too, I think we see here, and it goes back to Jesus' first 
his arrival in the scene. Very early in Jesus' life, his mom and dad, his, his parents would, would take them. All right, they, they went in for festivals. They, they would go to the, to the temple. And there was a man named Simeon who had been waiting his whole life. He was promised, hey, you're gonna get to see the Messiah before you die. Now, year after year after year, he's like, okay, Lord, is it coming? Because I'm a super old man at this point, right? And eventually Jesus shows up. And I want you to pay attention to the words that are offered a blessing over Jesus. It showcases for us like, no, this has been taking place. This happened as part of the first advent. It says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, now look at his words. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So in Revelation chapter 20, when he speaks of, all right, um, him being bound, he, sh- he might not deceive the nations any longer. And then what Simeon spoke over Jesus, like this is played out, this is true. Michael Wilcock in his commentary on Revelation says it this way, every time we see a new convert add to the church, Satan's inability to deceive the nations is proclaimed afresh. What do you see in the book of Acts? What do you see as the gospel advances? It goes not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, and it spreads. And the testimony of the fact of the first advent and the impact and the time that we're living in now in God's sovereign rule and reign is you're here this morning, and so am I. That God is at work. This is not just someday off in the future. He's telling us Satan has been bound. The truth of the gospel is advancing. And then he tells us in verses four to six. Now, there's a lot of imagery here, and there's more that we can get into, but he's saying... He speaks of first resurrection. And there's some that are like, okay, there's gonna be this resurrection and then there's gonna be this thousand years, this kind of glorious period. And then at the end of that, there's gonna be judgment. I believe though, it's right here, right now again, that God is telling us, listen, the saints are reigning. Those who have died, if you've died in Christ, you are with Jesus. And so four to six, it says, I saw thrones and seated in them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, all those that have actually given their life. And it says, and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image. And so it's this broad group. It's those that have been martyred, but it's also those, anyone who's been a follower of Jesus who has died. They, they did not receive its mark on their foreheads, their hands. It says, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. It means those loved ones that have passed away right now are seated with Christ. They're ruling and they're reigning and they are awaiting the day because it says the souls, when the soul and the body will unite. And at the second advent, we'll look at this more in a moment. And when we get into chapters 21 and 22, we get to see God's plan to renew everything. Not zapping you up into heaven as this disembodied soul floating around in the clouds, but new heavens and new earth and new resurrected bodies. But right now in this time, these men and women, these followers of Christ, says they are reigning. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Meaning those who, those who were not followers of Christ, they are going to be risen in order to be judged. We'll see that later in this text. So it says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. 
So I believe this is what's happening in the present. All of this is given to give us a confidence. The same to that original audience who are dealing with massive persecution, so much uncertainty. God gives John this vision, said, please let my people know. I still have a plan that I'm working. I'm going to get you home. In fact, home is going to come here. The new heavens and new earth, this new Jerusalem is going to come down out of heaven. God is going to dwell with us. This is where the story is heading. And so don't lose sight of that. Now, you and your pain, here's the reality. Like, there are painful things that you're dealing with. There's suffering that you have endured. There's suffering maybe you're enduring currently. Some of you are like, oh, I'm in a pretty good place. Just know, like, it is coming at some point. And do, are we going to go back to these sorts of texts and realize what the first advent accomplished? And then with this longing, this hopeful anticipation, this devotion to Jesus, I trust what you did first and foremost in the first advent, and I believe you're coming back. The second advent is going to occur. And that's what 7 to 15 speak of. So let's look at this in this last section. It does tell us, right, if you look back even at the end of verse 3, it says, after that, meaning Satan, he must be released for a little while. So there's this, there's this present that is being spoken of, but then there is this time in the future. And verse 7 speaks of this. It says, when the thousand years are ended. So just prior, I believe is what it's communicating, to Jesus coming back, here's what we can expect. Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. It's in the book of Ezekiel. It's just a, a, a reference to like literally the enemies of God are gathering, all right? It's what it's communicating. Or if you're looking for names for your children, Gog and Magog apparently, okay? So to gather them for battle, their number, look at this, their number is like the sand of the sea. It's this way of communicating like this is a massive armies, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And at this point, it's looking bleak. At this point, right? I mean, it feels like what it must have felt like to see Jesus on the cross. I thought you were the one. I thought you were the king. I thought God was going to get us home. I thought this was the A plan. Apparently, this isn't working out. And then look at this line. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So at some point, I wish I knew more detail. We want to speculate, grab coffee, we'll talk through this, whatever. But there's this point in the future where it says Satan will be released. And it apparently, I mean, it looks like a big deal. What it's speaking of here the term Armageddon, like that's where it's heading. And honestly, I can read that and be like, oh my gosh, like what's gonna be so horrible and so horrific. And, and again, we don't know all the details, but did you notice like what God is communicating here? Like, yeah, we can get hung up on like the, you know, like the sand and the, the seashore and Gog and Magog and all this stuff. Oh, but guess what? There's this sovereign God and he's ruling and reigning and the fire came down from heaven and consumed them. End of story, Armageddon is like this little footnote apparently according to God. Right? It's like, oh, yeah, that, that happened. Yeah, I took care of that. Now, I'm not saying like it's going to be amazing to live. I don't know the particulars of that, but I do know this, that the power of God is being demonstrated. We can look at this and be like, oh, my gosh, what's going what's to happen? And we feel that in our circumstances in life. And God wants us to know, hey, I can take care of this. I am going to take care of this. This is all in preparation to get you home. You couldn't get home on your own. You would be destroyed. But I came, I sent fire down from heaven and I consumed them and it's over like that. 
And then as we continue, verses 11 to 15, look with me, these last few moments, he says he gets this continued vision then, all right? And this is what is spoken of at the arrival of Jesus. This is the second advent. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. And so literally what's happening is every person who's ever passed away, every person who's ever died, all right, is literally resurrected at this point and they're going to stand before the judge. If you didn't listen to last week's message, if you weren't here, I would encourage you to go and listen, listen to this. Eric did a masterful job about even just the idea of like, how can we even want a judge? Just the end of Revelation 19. There's a lot of overlap between 19 and 20. It's this different way of kind of continuing to retell the story from different angles. But there is this day of judgment coming. All right, it says they were, uh, were judged by what was written in the books according to what they'd done. That's kind of terrifying, isn't it? Like, hey, there's this gigantic book, and it can flip to it and be like, oh, yeah, you want to know what you did on February 6th, you know, 1992? Yeah, I got it right here, right? Like, oh, okay, right? Like, there's all of these things. Like, nothing has ever, like, missed God's vision. He knows everything about you, more than you even know about you and know about me, right? So everything was written in the books according to what they had done. It says the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. So basically like, like literally everybody's gonna be gathered around the throne. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. And at first glance, like, okay, well, that's cool. I'm glad that that got thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. But then verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It goes from the sort of abstract to this very personal what is God communicating to us? These words, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Those are hard words. Those are, there's a soberness to this. There's a heaviness to this. But God wants us to know the great lengths he would go to get us home. C.S. Lewis has written a number of different books and resources and things um, on the topic of hell and wrestling through it. And, and what was a question for people in his lifetime are questions that we have today. And it seems so unfathomable. Like, I, I don't get it. And I'm not saying I'm going to explain all of that in this moment. But I did find this particular quote helpful. So if you've got those questions, you wrestle through this. I think we all do. I think we all should. If you're like, oh, I love the idea of hell. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, right? Like, that's, that's kind of a, on one hand, like, it should feel kind of like, man, this is, this is difficult. But it also should showcase for us both the love and the justice of God, God's desire to get us home, that sin would no longer be present. He doesn't want that in the home. Like, we wouldn't experience all that he has for us if there wasn't this judgment. So Lewis, being asked about hell, spoke of it this way. He says, in the long run, the answer to all of those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out the past sins of the damned and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? He's like, is that what you're asking him to do? Okay. He has done so in Jesus. Did you catch that? Like, it's a legitimate question. Okay, this is what I'm asking. He's like, yeah. If you know the truth, the truth is advancing. Satan is bound. Like what Jesus ha has done, that Jesus died in your place, like took on all of your sin, all of your brokenness, the death you deserve and that I deserve. Like Jesus paid for it all. He has done so in Jesus. Are you asking God to forgive them? Well, he says, well, they do not want to be forgiven. Are you asking God to leave them alone? He says, alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. Meaning to the person who says, 
I don't want to submit to you. I don't want your forgiveness. God's like, okay, then your will be done. I'm afraid that is what he's done. He has left them alone. And to be alone apart from the presence of God is hell. Those that don't submit their life to Jesus, what it's telling us here in verse 15, end up separated from God and it is hell. And those that have submitted their life to Jesus say, I need your grace, I need your forgiveness on my own. I can't do this, Jesus, you came for me. I understand that, I worship you. Like all of that results in home. So it's either hell or it's home. And both are eternal. But one is either home with God or one is separation from God. So there's this book of life close with this everyone here's the key every single person past present future one day Jesus comes back and he's the judge every single person will be judged by works like whoa wait a minute like I thought we're about grace and it's not about works but here's the difference and it's spelled out so beautifully in these verses this is why this text As confusing as it can be, it makes much of Jesus. And we need to see this. And this is where we need to close. You're either going to be judged by your works or you're going to be judged by Jesus' works done on your behalf. Which is it going to be? God can open up the book and he can see and he can see every deed and every thought and every motivation that wasn't pure. Everything that like you've, oh gosh, I forgot that I even did like all of it. And you can be judged by that. And you can offer that up to God and be like, I'm a pretty good person. And he'll be like, mm, not so much. Or you can be judged by Jesus' perfect, spotless record. 100% righteous. Always did the will of the Father, even though it would cost him his life. And the beautiful good news of the truth that is advancing that we can get in on that would actually get us home is Jesus says, here, I'll give you my book. I'll give you all my righteousness. There's not a single thing in there that speaks of me doing anything wrong. And your book, which is filled with all of that and even your best things that you're like, I'm kind of proud of this. is like, it's, well, it's filthy rags according to God. He's like, I'll take that. And that will be a judgment against me. I will die in your place. This is what 2 Corinthians 5 says. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Imputed, imparted righteousness. On my own, I can't get home. On my own, I deserve hell. But Jesus says, I will take on hell for you. I will die in your place and I will give you all of my righteousness. The first advent accomplished that. The second advent will be the opportunity for us to know in full the righteousness and to have our lives and everything made new. And we'll look at that more next week. So I wanna lead us in that time of prayer here. After this time of prayer, when we start with communion in a moment, if you've got elementary kids, you can go get them. But I'm just gonna lead us right now. The worship team's gonna come back up. But just let me guide you in just a time of prayer uh, here. Take a moment to quiet your hearts and I'll give us some instruction how we're gonna continue. But let's let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your kindness, your exceeding kindness and grace that you would put a plan together that at just the right time you would send your son. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here present with us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, right now that you would lead us in a time of repentance that we would see the various ways where maybe we've been trying to find life apart from you. We've been thinking we could find a home independent of you. So Spirit, lead us now. God, hear our prayers 
of confession and repentance. Jesus, in your kindness and your grace, we know that as we've studied even this morning, we are part of this amazing story of what you accomplished in your first advent and what you're going to accomplish in your second advent. And so by the power of your spirit, now we ask, Holy Spirit, help us to remember. Help us to remember who we are as adopted sons, that we have an inheritance. Help us to remember that Satan is bound, that the truth is advancing both in our lives and the lives of people, God, there are people that we care deeply for, that we want to see a work of the gospel in their life. And if we're honest, we honestly kind of feel like, God, I don't know if you can save them. So would you remind us of your power and your strength? Take a moment now to, to remember the glorious good news of the gospel and to thank him for it. of this story that we're part of that we can actually be a people that rejoice even in the midst of sorrow we are not people that stick our head in the sand and just kind of ignore the pains and the problems of the world in our lives we feel it we know that it's there but God we don't mourn we don't weep as those without hope we can rejoice in the story that we're part of so as we continue in our service now God I pray that you would get your glory and by the power of your spirit, would you fill us, fill us afresh with your joy? We want to experience your presence. Give us just a taste of what home will be like. We know that part of that is when your church gathers. And so we thank you for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.